Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Happy Father's Day to those who are dads. I appreciate what Hugh uh, exhorted us to do this morning, to run to our Heavenly Father this morning like the little children do, running to their father. Uh, Oftentimes, when we relate to God, we can relate to God in the same way we relate to our earthly fathers. Depending on how our relationship went with our earthly father, we can relate to our Heavenly Father in that way. And kind of an example of this um, for me personally is I remember when I was in junior high, uh, my dad took my brother and I to an ice cream store uh, in the Buffalo area where he was from. And while we were at that ice cream store, I don't know why this idea came into my head, but there were some candies that they had, and I thought I would take some. Uh, Not take some to the counter to pay for them, but I thought, oh, there's just a couple. I'll just take them. I'd never done that before. I, I don't know what happened in that moment. But I I grabbed some, and I put them in my hand, and uh, my dad saw. So my dad came and started asking me some questions, you know, trying to get me to just say, I've got these in my hand. But of course, I'm like, you know, got it behind, and I'm trying to answer the questions. Well, certainly my dad uh, obviously gets to the place where he realizes I'm going to steal these things. He confronts me, and I just feel guilt. I I feel shame. I'm I'm afraid of what's going to happen. Uh, my dad literally goes and he just like grabs a mess of them, throws them in a bag, takes them to the counter, buys them, and uh, clearly uh, he was not happy with me. And for the rest of the day, for our two-hour drive home, and for a number of days, maybe even weeks after that, I just felt this distance from my dad. And it had nothing to do actually with him. It had everything to do with me and what I had done. And oftentimes, we can relate to our Heavenly Father the same way. We can respond to God based on our experience and how we feel, not based on the truth that we find in God's Word. So we're going to look at some truth in God's Word so that we can relate rightly to our Father. But this text actually uh, takes us into the Old Testament uh, to talk about how those, uh, the people of God related to God in the Old Testament, but then comes and takes us right up to, as Megan read at the end, about what the new covenant looks like and how we relate to God now. So that's what we're going to look at. So we're going to look at three realities this morning. The first reality was that the Old Covenant worship had specific rules to engage with God. So folks from ages past, they engaged with God, but there were specific rules that they had to engage with with God. As it says in verse 1, even now the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And then he kind of, uh, he kind of goes through all some of the specific things that we find in the tabernacle. And then he says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now he can say that at the end of verse 5 because he's talking to a group of Hebrew Christians. Remember, this is written to Hebrews. It's called Hebrews because these are Jewish Christians. So they would have understood some of the things that he references here. He doesn't need to unpack it because they have a vision of what this is. They were used to doing sacrifices in the temple, and they would have understood what these are, but we don't. We don't quickly, though we may 
have a, a general understanding, or maybe we've read it in our Bibles, it's not part of our daily experience. So we're just going to jump in to some of these specific things a little bit, just to get a sense of what the original hearers would have already, already understood in reading this. So they had a specific location to worship. It was uh, the tabernacle. We kind of have an image that kind of looks like an image that I drew, but I, I, didn't, I didn't draw the image. But this, is, this was the tabernacle. This was a, a large portable tent. Remember, uh, the people of God were kind of a nomadic people as they traveled around before they entered the promised land. They, were, they lived in tents, and so when they would move, they'd pack everything up. They'd pack up the tabernacle, and then when they get to where they're going to go, they'd, they'd put the tabernacle up, they'd set it all up, and then they'd set their tents around it. So this was located in the middle of town, as it were. Everything else was around it. This was the central focus for the people of God. So everyone would have known what was going on here and would have seen it. If you were going to cross from one side of town to the other, you'd have gone back past this and seen what was going on here. And as you came to the tabernacle, you would have seen a white linen walls about 150 feet long and 70 feet wide. And you would have entered the courtyard. If you would have entered the courtyard here, if you'd, if you'd have gone in, this is what you would have seen. You would have seen the altar of burnt offering. So it was a large bronze altar with a horn at each of its four corners and which, uh, you know, offerings uh, were, were, were made on it. And this was as far as you could go. So that's as far as you could go. So as you, you came in, that's kind of an upper view of it. You'd come to here, and that's as far as you got to go. The average person didn't go beyond that. Then the next thing we find in the text they, that was the wash basin. The priests would go there. That's where they would, would clean, them, clean themselves because there, there were sacrifices that were made. There was, there was blood that happened with the sacrifices that happened there. Then they would have to go and they'd have to clean, clean themselves. And that was really important because their lives would be in danger to go into the presence of God without being cleansed. Then directly behind that was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was flat-roofed, as you saw before. It was, uh, you know, it, it was covered with three layers. First consisted of, of a gorgeous woven tapestry of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and linen, which was then overlaid with two layers of animal skins. So let's try to get the picture of this. We don't, we don't have this in our culture, so we, we, we don't have this coming right to our minds. And inside the tabernacle, it was divided into two rooms, and there was a veil that separated the two rooms. And there were, the, the outer room was called the holy place. And then the inner room was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And you would, in the process of going through, you would have seen the, the lampstand. You would have seen uh, the, the, the 12 loaves of bread or the table of the presence, which contained 12 loaves of bread, at each one for each tribe of the nation of Israel. And then you come to the holy place where the priests had fellowship with God on behalf of the people. So that, that, that was symbolized by the bread and the loaves that they consumed. And then in, in verse three, we come to the second curtain. And when you come past the second curtain, you're in the inner sanctum. As we've talked about before, the Holy of Holies. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant. It had gold, it was a gold paneled container 
which also served as the footstool of God's throne. And on top were two golden cherubim between which God's glory especially dwelt. You know, kind of we, we see that, the picture of that. And in it were tablets. The tablets of the Ten Commandments were in it, which, which prescribed the terms of the law. And there also contained a, a jar with manna in it. Remember the manna that God provided for his people uh, in the wilderness for them to eat, and also Aaron's staff in which he caused it to bloom uh, as he identified Aaron as being the chosen high priest. So they're really special holy things. And we can, we can kind of read through this, or even as we're reading our Old Testament, and we're just like, oh, well, that's interesting. Now I can answer a question on, you know, when we're playing Bible trivia, I can answer some things. But that's not the purpose of knowing about these things. The details seem distant from our experience. They seem distant and dry and maybe even boring. But Dr. Ken Hughes said this. He said, everything was there. The tabernacle, so rich in ornament and meaning, which bore in its sanctus sanctorum God's presence and a ritual that taught both the holiness of God and the depth of man's sin, in that no one could enter God's presence without the shedding of blood. These things that seem boring, these regulations, these regulations reveal the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. Sacrifices were made daily. Everyone would have been constantly aware of God's holiness. It was visible to everyone that this was going on. The people could not have gotten away from the seriousness of sin. This is why they couldn't have gotten away from the seriousness of it, because they had to bring sacrifices of, of their own to be sacrificed. Now, I've got an image here. Um, I don't have a live lamb or anything like that uh, present, so, so just, just, have, just have a little bit of an imagination here, okay? Just a little bit. Little, I'm not going to ride this. No one else is going to ride this. But here's the reality. You bring your animal. You'd, you'd go to, to have your, your sins, you know, atoned for, and, you know, and, and you, you'd, be, you'd be pulling this animal, right? As you're coming, this isn't just like some peaceful thing that people are walking up. You know, they're, they're yanking on the animal that they are, are bringing as they come in, and, then, and the only place that they can come to, they come to that, that place, that altar, And at that place, you would have your sacrifice and you would put your hand on it and so would the priest put his hand on it because that animal was going to take the penalty for your sin. There was a struggle that would happen there. This was real life. And then that animal would be sacrificed right in front of you. It's not some peaceful, happy thing happening that you would, would see or experience. Blood was shed, and you would see it. And if you were walking by, you would have heard the noises. The people of God at that time 
weren't distanced from their awareness of the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. It was, it was present there for them. God is holy and he requires perfection. And imperfection requires the shedding of blood. So for us, when we read through all of these things, does it take us to a place of, of taking sin seriously? Have you in your life underplayed the seriousness of sin? Because we often will we'll often kind of calibrate or, or, or measure the seriousness of our sin based on what we see other people doing. Oh, I'm better than Sally in our church. Like, she really struggles with stuff. I don't really struggle like that. Or even like, oh, my lost neighbors, they're doing things that I just can't mention here. And so I'm fine. No, the comparison isn't with anyone else horizontally. The comparison needs to be made between us and our holy God. And that's why there needed to be all the rules. That's why all that had to take place because sin is serious and God is holy. But then the second reality that we want to look at here in the text is the old covenant system was inadequate. The things that they do didn't take them all the way, didn't take them to the place that you would hope that it would take them. Look at your Bibles at verse 6. It says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood. So the priests could go. We would have had to stop at the place of that altar, but the priests could go, and even some of them, the reality is, is the priests might go like themselves, maybe once in their career for a week to do, to do this work in there, because there were many priests that were working. Not every single one went into that first section. But only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Only one man could go into the presence of God and fellowship with God on behalf of the people of God. And that experience wasn't what, oh, it wasn't like, oh, yes, I'm the one that gets to go into God's presence. That would have been one of like shaking in your boots. The reality is if you didn't cleanse yourself, if you didn't make sure that you were clean before you went in, you died in the presence of God. It was a tenuous situation at best. There would have been tension if you were the high priest to go into God's presence. Extremely tense and short. It was prescribed that the priest was not only what wasn't allowed to stay very long, and those on the outside would have been waiting with bated breath. Is this individual going to come back out? So throughout the old covenant, even though there was this, all this prescribed worship, there was no direct access to God, period. No direct access. Andrew Murray wrote this. He said, the veil was the symbol of separation between a holy God and sinful man. They cannot dwell together. 
The tabernacle thus expressed the union of two apparently conflicting truths. God called man to come and to worship and to serve him, and yet he might not come too near. The veil kept him at a distance. Love calls the sinner near, but righteousness has to keep him back. The Holy One bids Israel build him a house in which he will dwell, but forbids them from entering his presence. So the system was inadequate. Not only did the old system not allow access to God, the old system didn't alleviate one's conscience either. Look at verses Look at verse 7b. So he said he offers for himself the sacrifice and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They couldn't live with a clean conscience. In part because this sacrifice was just for like unintentional sins. There wasn't, there wasn't something for, for those that, sins that were intentional. <coughs> Old covenant sacrificial system did not allow for forgiveness for premeditated sins. Verse uh, or Numbers chapter 15 says this, but the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among the people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. That person will be completely cut off and his guilt will be on him. So we're not just talking about, oh, I accidentally sinned. We're talking about when you, you willfully choose to sin. When someone willfully chose to commit adultery with someone else's spouse or someone willfully chose to murder someone or someone willfully chose to steal from someone. There were immediate consequences for that. There wasn't a sacrifice that you could go and make. No, what happened to you is you were sent out of the camp. You had to go outside the camp where the people of God dwell. You, you could no longer be in fellowship with God's people. So you would live with the weight of that. You'd live with the weight of that for the rest of your life if you were outside the camp and weren't with God people. And you certainly lived with the fear of it if you were inside the camp because you realized if you crossed the, the law of God, you would be separated. We, we, don't, we don't grasp that concept often. Maybe the only thing in our culture might be the the Amish culture, when someone doesn't follow the Amish rules and they shun them, they, they, you can't come back. You're no longer having fellowship. They have to completely leave 
the community. It's not, not the greatest picture, but that, that's kind of like the picture that we get. If you willfully committed sin, you were in a huge dilemma. So you both had limited access and a heavy conscience. The way isn't open if the temple is still standing, is what it says here. Richard Phillips said the day of atonement, so that was the day when the the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. The day of atonement proclaimed that the way was in fact barred on any regular basis. But the day of atonement also pointed forward to a day when the way would be fully opened. So as it says in in, in verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. The whole point of the tabernacle system of worship was on the one hand to show God's intent to have fellowship with his people, while on the other hand showing that the way for this was not yet open. The key phrase is not yet. Therein is summed up the entire Old Testament religion. No, the way was not open to God. It was barred. But it was not simply not open, but not yet open. Not yet until the time of Christ. Now, if you are here this morning or if you're watching online and you've never trusted in Christ, you still fall under the consequence of of the reality of the Old Testament. If you've willfully sinned against God, if you've lived your life apart from God, the future that you will experience in eternity will be a separation from God. But the truth, the gospel truth that we have this morning that we read about in verses 11 to 14 is Jesus came and instituted a new covenant by the shedding of his blood. And if you trust in Jesus, you can have the benefits that we're going to talk about. But if you've not trusted in Christ, whether you are five years old or 50, I'd encourage you, I'd exhort you, consider Christ, consider the seriousness of sin, and the holiness of God. But consider his grace in providing the Savior because the reality, the third reality, is that the new covenant is greater. Look at verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Jesus' blood secures unlimited access. Eternal redemption. Eternal means not ending. That means the redemption experienced by those who trust in Christ does not end. So that means the access does not end. Ken Hughes said, Jesus did not just slip into the most holy place amidst a protective cloud of incense to breathlessly perform a ritual sprinkling and then exit until next year. Instead, he came having given his own precious blood once for all, and there he sat down at the right hand of the Father, never more to leave. Never more to leave. 
He doesn't go again and again and again. No, he goes once for all. And we've talked about that time and again. The author of Hebrews wants the readers of Hebrews and wants us to get this down. That's why we're visiting it. We're revisiting it. Jesus died once for all. We no longer need to feel the weight of condemnation. And as a side note, there are some who open this text and they read verses 1 to 5 and they talk about the difference or even uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, and, and they say, well, really, this is kind of a description for New Testament believers of kind of the more mature Christians or maybe the less mature Christians. Like going into the holy place, that's where every Christian can go. But if you really have a mature faith and intimacy with God, you get to go into the holy of holies. That's a bunch of bubkis. It is. There's not two levels of Christians. You're either in Christ or you're not. You've either trusted in Jesus or you haven't. And when you trust in Jesus, you go right into the Holy of Holies. It's eternal redemption. You have direct access all the time, regardless of what you have done. Because of the finished work of Christ, our sins do not keep us from the holy God. It's true that our sin still affects us. It may affect us in enjoying fellowship with God. But that's more because maybe our consciences aren't cleansed. That's more because of where we're struggling. But our access to God is secured forever. You have unlimited access Unlimited access. Unlimited access. And the blood of Jesus purifies our conscience. So not just we have that opportunity, but also our our minds can, can be pure. In verses 13 and 14, it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats... Goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So even a purification of our conscience, but yet we still feel it. You feel that struggle because of sins you've committed. Maybe it's not even something you've done recently. Maybe it's something you've done in the past that seems to hang over your head. Albert Speer had that hanging over his head. Albert Speer was once interviewed about his last book that he wrote on ABC's Good Morning America. Speer, if you don't know who he is, was the Hitler confidant whose technological genius was credited with keeping Nazi factories humming throughout World War II. In another era, he might have been one of the world's industrial giants. He was the only one of 24 war criminals tried in the Nuremberg trials who admitted his guilt. Out of 24 who were tried, he's the only one who admitted that he was guilty. And then he spent 20 years in prison. The interviewer who was talking to him referred to a passage in one of Spears' earlier writings. He said, you have said guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? The look on Spears' face was wrenching 
as he responded, I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment, but I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime, and I can't get rid of it. The new book is part of my atoning, of clearing my conscience. The interview pressed the point, you really don't think you'll be able to clear it totally? Spear shook his head. I don't think it will be possible. For 35 years, this man accepted the complete responsibility for his actions. And his writings were filled with contrition. His writings were filled with warnings to others to avoid his moral sin. He desperately sought a clear conscience, but he didn't get one. How sad. Forgiveness was available to him because of the blood of Christ. He could have experienced the blessing of a new conscience without the sense of lingering guilt. And you, maybe you weren't responsible for keeping factories going that, 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 that funded a regime that, that killed millions of people and had mass destruction and afflicted people. Maybe you're not that. But the things you've done have separated you from God, and sometimes those things hang over our heads. But you can have a clear conscience. You can have a clear conscience. Because the, the barrier that God erected, it's been torn in two. But it, it, can, it can feel like it's not, because in our heads, we can still function like it's still there. We can try to avoid God because of, of our struggle with sin. We can avoid drawing near into his presence because we feel guilt. So we kind of, we kind of erect a temple. We erect a curtain. And that's what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to feel separate from God. He wants us to feel like there's something there. He wants us to sit and wallow in our condemnation. He wants us to relate to God the way that some of us might relate to our earthly father. Maybe you had an experience like mine where you did something and something was separated. But the reality is, is whether you had a great earthly father or a poor earthly father who, who poured out his wrath because of his inconvenience or whatever that may be, regardless of what kind of dad you had, every single earthly dad falls short. Because every single earthly dad is lost in their sin apart from Christ. No earthly father is perfect. No earthly father uh, requires our worship because no earthly father is holy and perfect. But our heavenly father wants us to know that there is a way. And he doesn't want us to relate to him the way we relate to our earthly father. He wants us to know the truths that we find in this passage 
of Scripture. He wants us to know Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. When you were dead there, he made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. And we learn from Matthew chapter 7 that the veil was torn. The veil wasn't torn like coming to this curtain. It wasn't torn from the bottom up because it wasn't torn by man. It was torn from the top to the bottom. When Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, no moment passed. There was no hesitation. When it was finished, the veil was torn and it stayed torn. Because that means that there's complete access, eternal access for those who trust in Christ and are found in him. And God doesn't just call us to serve him, but he wants us to commune with him. He wants us to have fellowship with him. Through faith in Christ, you're now free to worship and live as a child of God forever. The great hymn by Charles Wesley says this, My God has reconciled his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. By the blood of Jesus' Son, we now have access, and our consciences are now cleansed. I believe God wants us to embrace this fully. The worship team is going to come up, and we're going we're to sing as we normally do at the end of our time. But I believe the Lord doesn't want us to leave this place hindered in any way. As we sing this song, maybe you need to be staying seated. Maybe you need to come forward to receive prayer. Maybe you're in a place where you realize, I'm, I've not been taking sin seriously. And you need to come to a place of repentance. Now, you don't have to do that before a person. You can do that right before God in the place where you sit. But don't be hindered from coming. Know that you can come because of what Christ has done, and you can be cleansed. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But maybe you want to come forward and you want to get prayer. I know we don't typically do this, all the time, but, but I want to ask you to come forward while the worship team sings. I want you to come forward right up here. There's plenty of space. We've got leaders here. We're going we're gonna to pray for you. The leaders don't even know they're going to pray for you because I just told them. But another category of folks are here as well. Maybe there's not some sin that you're hiding that needs to be confessed before the Lord. Maybe you just feel distant like I felt distant from my dad because of what I did 
You don't feel like, I, I, I don't feel like I can come. The Lord wants your conscience to be cleansed. He wants you to embrace this truth about what Jesus has done. And sometimes we can't see because of the struggle that we have internally. We need a brother or sister to just pray for us. So I want you to come forward too. Or if there's any other reason you want to come forward to get prayed for, come forward to get prayed for. And it's fine if there's more people up here than that are sitting back there. We'll figure it out. But I'm going to pray for us and then, and then the worship team's going to sing. Maybe you're going to sing with them, but maybe you're going to come forward. And if someone doesn't come up to you right away, just, just wait. We're going, to, we're going to pray. Because I believe God wants us to embrace him. He wants us to meet him now and then every single day until Jesus comes back or until the Lord takes us home till we see him face to face. We need to know that the veil's been torn. The seriousness of our sin is real, but it's been paid for by the blood of Christ. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to embrace this truth that we have found in your word this morning, that we would embrace what Christ has done. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never trusted in Christ, Lord, would they come forward and encounter you? I'm going to pray, Lord, that you help us this morning because it's, it's not easy to go come up in front of a group of people. but it's even harder to come in front of a holy God and, and that is fully and completely open to us right now. So I pray, Lord, that you give grace and that you meet everyone where they are as we pray, that we would know you and that we would commune with you and that this Father's Day would be ultimately about the joy that we have that we have relationship with our Heavenly Father and we can come to you freely like a little child. So I ask God that you do that in us this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.